Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Laura Gonzalez Stephanie, founder and CEO of The Venture City, a global accelerator and venture capital fund of emerging ecosystems specialized in growth with the mission to help entrepreneurs from all over the world. Prior to Venture City, Laura spent many years in big tech, including Facebook, eBay, Siemens, and Ogilvy Group. We talked about Laura's career in big tech, her decision to leave Facebook and launch the Venture City, the challenges of building a fund and why she believes she leads the most diverse VC in the industry, her decision to base the company in Miami well before the Miami Twitter craze of 2020, I should add, her investing and portfolio management approach, what excites her about investing in fintech all over the world, and a whole lot more. And now join me in a great conversation with Laura Gonzalez Stephanie. Well, Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Really thrilled to have you here join us all the way from Miami. Uh, yes. <laughs> so maybe we can get started by hearing your story. I, I know you thank have you a, an interesting one, you know, starting. An accidental one, I would say. <laughs> um, sure. So I'm not an engineer and I am not, you know, I was, uh, I'd like to think that I'm kind of like a glitch in the whole tech ecosystem because I studied uh, mass media communications and right uh, when, when I was finishing college, you know, internet came into our lives. And so it was kind of like, cool, this looks like something interesting that I can learn a ton from because nobody knows anything about it. And that's how I, I accidentally jumped into the tech world. So I've been working in tech for, yes, since 1997, I believe, uh, in different roles, doing different things. I've been an entrepreneur myself back in 1999, uh, and I burst with a bubble in 2000. Uh, that was an amazing lesson to learn the hard way. Um, I've been since then working for other big players. Well, now they're big players. They weren't big players at the time, eBay in the early days in Europe, and then Facebook as an early employee. Uh, globally back in 2008 uh, when it, when there was nothing. In fact, the company was fundraising at the time. And then, you know, after many years working for Facebook and watching how that amazing company turned into such a big platform, I decided to go back to entrepreneurship. And uh, being in Miami and being inspired by all these immigrants and entrepreneurs that uh, come to Miami and start from scratch, I decided, I met my co-founder, Clara. She's from Argentina. And together, we started the, the Venture City. So yes, from Miami to the world, that's basically how we started. Outstanding. I'm curious about the culture at Facebook, particularly you were there at the time. Very early, of, yes, yes. Yeah, hyper growth, I guess. You, Be, you, before that. Yeah. Do you, oh, wow. Do, do you draw some of those lessons from your time at Facebook and have you applied them to the Venture City? Yes, obviously. So back in the day, the people that worked at the company were very mission-driven because it was a high-risk company. I mean, it was crazy. The fact that, you know, nobody wanted to share anything personal on the internet back then. And then, you know, Mark comes in and starts putting faces and names, real names and real faces to the internet, right? So it was very, very risky. Now it's kind of like, of course, Laura, it was obvious. But back then, it wasn't obvious at all. 
And I think that the people from the very beginning, we really believed and we just not only when I joined, but also when I left, I truly believe that the company is changing our lives and it's making the more the world definitely more open and connected, right? So a lot of the apps, and of course, like every other startup, we have had so much ups and downs, right? Since then, I remember, you know, we were a web-based product and we had to, boom, from one day to the next, become a native mobile. But uh, so we had to learn ourselves a lot of different things that, and we had to embrace them because they were coming. And in fact, we learned a lot from Latin America. So I can deep dive a little bit on that. You know, Latin America was one of the regions that really taught us what was needed in the product to be able to scale globally to billions of users of mobile. Anyway, so yes, a lot of the lessons for growth and a lot of the mistakes is something that I kind of like help predict with the companies and the founders that we work with today. And I can share a couple if you want or... Absolutely, yeah. Yes, yes. So one of the key things in growing exponentially internationally is, I would say, is a mix of two things. One, obviously, product. You have to have a product that obviously is the best product out there that solves a really, really big problem that humans have all over the place. That's number one. Second, data. Take decisions based on data. Thing that we do today at the Venture City every time we have a company that joins in our product like growth program, we basically help them build the data foundation of the business. Which, you know, most of the times companies say, Look, I don't have very much traction yet. I don't really think I need that. What? You really need to have this from the very beginning because you know, data gives you a story that sometimes, you know, intuition doesn't doesn't give you. Well, not sometimes, most of the time. So it's much better when you take decisions based on data plus the intuition that you may have as a founder, but always will support it. It helps you predict an iceberg or a big deep. So that was one of the lessons. The second lesson is that to grow internationally, you have to think global and act global, right? You know, a lot of people tend to think, oh no, I'm an American business, you know, I have 200,000 active users already every day on mobile. Spain and Germany, Brazil and Mexico are going to be easy. And then you realize that you don't grow in those markets and you don't understand why. So trust local talent, build local teams so that you really get to understand that. And three, I think the most important one is always listen to your people. I think this is listen, 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 keep getting feedback. Try to build those feedback loops as soon as you can all over the place to really understand what you're building and what you have on your mind is really being used and perceived on the markets that you want to tap. So those are basically three things. And of course, surround by people that are always better than yourself so that the team can really grow in a very efficient way and no room for mediocrity. This concept of surrounding yourself with top-level people that obviously keeps coming up when we talk to founders, when we talk to investors. And of course, it makes sense. But I imagine with everyone looking for the best talent, I imagine it becomes challenging. There there must be like a a race for talent, a war for talent. Uh, You look, everybody talks about diversity. Let me tell you one thing. It is so hard. I believe today the most diverse fund that exists, not only because of the, my OPs, not only because of my founders, not only because of my team members or our thinking. It is so tough to be surrounded by people that are much better than yourself and most of the time that think very differently. That's the reality, right? So people tend to feel afraid of bringing people that are better than themselves 
I feel thrilled. Well, I know, you know, I'm the CEO of my business right now. And every time I hire someone that I know is a hundred times better than myself and a lot younger, I'm kind of like, oh my God, you know? So I think that is the most helpful thing to building a company in a team, in a family, in anything to embrace diversity of thinking and to make sure that the people you're going to work with have to be people that you can learn from. Because at the end of the day, there are so many different things. You know, there's always a balance. But definitely, yes. I mean, embracing diversity, making sure that you have people that are much better than yourself is the, the secret weapon of the most successful businesses. The name of the game. So tell us a little bit about Venture City. I understand it's not just Miami. You have a... No, 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 no. It's okay. from Miami to the world. So I was in Silicon Valley for many years. And when I was there working for Facebook, I used to welcome entrepreneurs from all over the world, you know, that were coming. Friends of friends. Hey, Laura, my friends are going there. Please make sure that you take them to Stanford, you know, University Avenue, whatever. You help them find their way. You know, so I used to be in touch with many entrepreneurs. And um, one thing that I saw is that despite that Silicon Valley has a lot of capital and so many founders, obviously there's a lot more competition as well. And when you don't belong to Silicon Valley, meaning that you're an outsider to that network, you haven't gone to, you know, you didn't go to Stanford or Berkeley or Carnegie Mellon, or you don't surf with whomever, whatever, or you don't work within one of the big tech companies. I mean, when you are someone that are coming from Europe, from Latin America, you get there and you get super fascinated about all these meetups and these organizations every day in everywhere of entrepreneurs sharing wisdom with other entrepreneurs, et cetera. You know, it's hard to tap into those networks. It's hard to build your own circle there. So I would say it was kind of like, whoa, this is a huge problem because at the end of the day, not the best entrepreneurs are the ones that get the access. So is the one that has the best connections, the one that is very much better, has already built-in relationships, are the ones that get it. But the ones that may be as brilliant or even more, because they don't have that background kind of like built, they, they don't get it. And this is why it's part of a few projects where I'm already working with Facebook in Miami and in other countries in Latin America. I decided like, I'm going to build this which is going to be kind of like an investment vehicle that is not only going to be helping founders in, from Series A onwards or pre-Series A, we're also going to be working as a very heavy lifting team with the different entrepreneurs. I don't like to think about an accelerator because I think that they don't have a very good, you know, people don't think really well, maybe just YC and tech stars, um, but uh, we're much more like an ad hoc team that works towards different startups and we help them grow for a period of time and we invest as well. We are very product-led and obviously very operational. So at the end of the day, from Miami, we have offices, of course, in San Francisco, headquarters in Miami and Miami for the Americas, but for Europe. And then we have small offices in Sao Paulo and San Francisco. But you know, we were remote before this whole pandemic hit us. And we've been working with over 52 companies really hand on hand in the past uh, few years, building businesses with them in Chile, in Uruguay, in London, in Belgium, in Austria, in Miami, in Angola, in Lisbon, you name it. So that, that was really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to kind of like reach Build those bridges for those amazing founders into those hubs that at the end of the day are the ones that have 
the capital, the access, etc., through the venture city. And we're learning like crazy. I feel like, woo, again, my brain's at, uh, you know, 10,000 miles per hour. And at the same time, uh, we are getting to learn a lot with, with all these founders. That's incredible. So it sounds like you have created an ecosystem that yes. stands uh, beyond borders. What would you say your portfolio companies have in common? Because you mentioned Angola, Colombia, Uruguay, yes. and Spain. Like There has yes. to be something to prove them, right? Of course. In fact, to be frank with you, this was something that was really hard for us in the beginning because most of the people were saying, Laura, focus on one thing. Invest, do investing. But don't operate at the same time as you invest. I was like, eh, you don't get it. In emerging tech hubs all over the world, even in the US, you take Austin, you take Miami, you take Atlanta. You know, the access is not as such. The tech ecosystem is not as mature. You need someone that is going to be able to help them connect the dots. So I basically didn't pay attention to that super useful feedback that a lot of my friends were giving us. And we were kind of like, we're going to focus on emerging tech hubs or in immigrants in the different countries, outsiders to those nations that are building something that is very unique and that is touching potentially billions of lives or billions of customers or billions of transactions. I really, really like, we never thought about something about working alongside investing in the business that was just to be gated to Colombia or just to be gated to the US or just to be gated to Spain. Okay. We were always thinking about those founders that are aggressive and ambitious in their, in their mindset and they want to build from Colombia to the world, from the US to the world, from Spain to the world. So basically the common thesis is that we're emerging, we're investing in emerging tech hubs or in emerging founders no matter where they are, that are really building the next generation of products that are in fintech, health tech, connectivity, with all those things that that means, connectivity, and commerce related. So for example, if you look at Fund One, you know, we have mobility companies, which is, again, it's one of these industries that needed to be disrupted, Cabify, right, founded by an Equatorian guy in Boston, MIT. We have companies in fintech returning in San Francisco. We have Ricardo Pay in Brazil. I personally have Clip in Mexico, and we have Fuel in Spain. We have different kind of businesses. We look into connectivity. We have knowledge in San Francisco and Spain. So I have many, many examples. And in fact, there's an American that landed in Spain. It wasn't the Spanish guy that landed in Menlo Park. You know, it was just the opposite. So we take the opportunity from those emerging founders and emerging tech apps, and we help them with everything regarding product data, and engineering. And I know that if you're in Silicon Valley and you're hearing to this podcast, you may be saying, wow, this is bullshit. This is the basic stuff. Well, well, as soon as you start to go internationally and as soon as you build from other places, it's not obvious. So a good back to the basics is always a good, you know, starter. This is what we make sure we do from the very beginning with the startups that we work with. We help them with their foundation on instrument day and data instrumentation, then we go and we help them with experimentation and so many other things until we help them with a global growth strategies. So that's basically what at the end we're doing. It is true that sometimes we have you know opportunities that come our way into the portfolio of founders that you really, really, really love and that you are seeing that they have a ton of potential and may not be very specific to our thesis. You know, we have always a small bucket for opportunistic and then we look at those things and if we are able to help them, we help them somehow with our capital or sometimes we just help them get to the right investors at the right moment, which is key. 
right investing, right amount at the right moment. And that's basically what we've been doing. So even though we sounded very unfocused in the very beginning, two ladies, ah, we were super awkward, the two females, general partners, non-American ladies funding a venture capital in the U.S. The world is upside down. What the hell is going on? Two Hispanas, even. We raised our first fund, $52.5 million, that now is top quartile in the vintage of 2017 in funds that are investing outside the United States and um, from the U.S. to outside. And before company portfolio, the last one is 4IQ, cybersecurity company out of Silicon Valley, and uh, 52 companies in our product-led growth program. Outstanding. Two ladies showing the market how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking the mold. All day long. <laughs> so, Laura, I, I think you are very well positioned to tell us maybe about some of the differences that you're seeing within fintech across yes. countries or regions that you call. Of course. And in fact, that's so interesting. You see, well, by the way, I sit on the board of Casa Bank, which is the biggest bank in Spain, which is interesting, right? Because I get to work with my bank into what are the next challenges that they are going to see? And at the same time, I invest in completely different ways of doing banking, you know. So I would say there's two different pieces here. I would say U.S. and Europe, which are very stable markets, let's say that way. They're stable markets. You know, the products are more along the lines of, how would I say, just have so many different ways to pay for different things, which doesn't happen in emerging markets. Most of the people are banked, which doesn't happen in emerging markets. Credit is more or less easy to get, although the U.S. situation with credit is such a, you need to be a Nobel Prize to really understand how you build credit in this country. But anyway, but again, it's more or less to get credit than if we go into other things. Most of the people are full-time employed, which it doesn't happen in emerging markets. So. If you look at most of the people in the mature markets are above, I would say, quality, they have a good financial situation, which in emerging markets, if you work that day, you have money to pay your top-ups of your phone and something to eat. And maybe you don't work the next day. Next day, you can access your phone or you can... So it is very different, the concept of building fintech for mature markets and building fintech for emerging. But where is the opportunity? And that is where the whole thing flips. The biggest opportunity is in emerging markets. Yay! And so anything about frictionless payments, anything about lending to individuals, but also to SMBs, anything around how to you know, benefit. Again, the cost of payroll doesn't exist to the vast majority of the population in emerging markets. But there's ways to emulate a potential wallet that they can keep getting the money in so that you can build some kind of like credit so that potentially you can access to the basic financial services over time, blah, blah, blah. So I think that I was just reading of a fund, a friend fund, an innovation fund that I would just say, let's see you say. Oh, we, uh, we've had company. Alex Lazaroff. Oh, oh, you had Alex Lazaroff. Good, good. And, you know, those are untapped markets in Hong Kong. Those are untapped markets with such an amazing, and they're rebuilding their whole financial infrastructure. Another one, Nova Payment, 
which is the led by a woman, and Finconecta, led by a gentleman, which is one of the companies in our portfolio. They're really the infrastructure for fintech and banking in the regions, right? In Latin America, in this particular case. Tayo, who's building this amazing mobile wallet in Nigeria with Depa. So there are, it's kind of like going back to the past, things that the U.S. and Europe already have, but they are building it the right way today. So at the end of the day, what you can do with those infrastructures is much more than what you can do with the infrastructures that we have in the U.S. and Europe. So it's a very fascinating and a very interesting space to invest today. If the founders choose you, because this is important, I believe that the good founders choose the capital and not the capital chooses the founder. It's very different because when you're oversubscribed, you really want to be surrounded by the funds that are going to help you in the different milestones that you're going to have. When you're not, you know, because maybe your progress or your is not as good, you tend to go to the front that's going to guarantee whatever, which is a big mistake. I think that as founders, we need to be able to choose the capital. Yeah, yeah. You know, you bring up Latin America, of course, and you're seeing larger than ever rounds right? And you're seeing the best companies be always oversubscribed for their rounds, right? I'm guessing that has definitely changed from the time you started, even just a few years ago. Oh, I I have to tell you one thing. We do this quarterly report on venture capital where we benchmark the US, Latin America, and Europe at the same time. Because there's something super interesting happening. As founders, we are starting to look for capital outside our regions. And as capitalists, we're starting to look founders outside our region. That wasn't happening before. It was hard to see a few years ago that an American fund was going to be investing in a company outside the United States of America. And it was very hard to see. And a founder from Spain or a founder from, yeah, a founder from Spain getting invested by Kleiner Perkins. And that is happening every day now. So it's interesting to see that the dynamics in the last few years Precisely now in COVID time, because I think this is a good message for founders. And again, I am a founder, and at the same time, I am an investor. I'm a really glitch in the system, as I said before. But I think it's easier right now to raise bigger chunks of money from existing investors that you have or people that know you, because obviously you've been building that relationship. And even though you can't be close to them or see them and go and grab lunch with them, they know you, right? Obviously, you have to have good results behind of you. I'm giving for granted that you're building a, something interesting business. But if you're an early stage founder and you have some, an amazing idea, ideas have always been created in downturn times. I don't know what's going on with the VC community that people are not investing in series in, in seed and pre-series A's as much. I am just the opposite. Again, going back to the glitch. I should have named my fund glitch because I think that is now in times of downturn, we are investing more than ever in early stage, meaning in, we want to be the first ticket of the founders. We really want to be the first ticket of the funds. And I think that that's most of the venture capital we should think. Well, that, that's what you know, venture the very, capital is all about, right? You, you, you're taking big risks, but you are investing where most of the capital doesn't want to. And, and the fact that you... Well, that's a, everybody says that, but very few do it. Right. You know, there is a misalignment between what you say, what you think, and what you do. And the reality of this report that we just built is that seed stage, particularly in emerging markets, is dead. Nobody wants to put money in an emerging business in an emerging market. You know, it's tougher. 
a lot tougher than ever, but I'm, it's not allowing it. It's on the data. But here we are, the Venture City. We are willing to give you that ticket. And we want to push our network of sister VCs to invest alongside because I really believe that the best opportunities are being created as we speak. As, as one of my friends say, the best future is happening. Love it. Love it. So I think you've kind of answered my last question is how does the road ahead look like for the Venture City? You know, is it larger? fund with more investments or, or is there more in the cards? So we are currently raising fund two. And, uh, we want to invest larger tickets. We want to lead most of the opportunities. In fund one, we led a few. And in fund two, we want to lead more. But we are going to be doubling on early stage, meaning first ticket, doubling them. We want to really identify all the founders in the U.S. that need the first ticket come to the venture city, no matter where you are. We are used to remote working. We've been remote from day one already. Three years ago, to our founders, they will tell you if we are good or not good. They're friends and teammates for your adventure, but we really want to die in early stage. This is, we are in a time frame right now, now to the next 18 months, where a lot of amazing, super disruptive companies are going to be created. And we want to be their first ticket. Love it. And, and I, by the way, I completely agree with you. <laughs> uh, great. Well, Laura, this is really fascinating. I love your energy. Uh, and you clearly... Too much. Love, no, no, no. It's good. You clearly love what you do. And I'm sure the listeners, that, that energy will be transmitted through the waves of sound. <laughs> uh, before we go, one last question. What are some of your favorite hobbies? Uh, are, are there any new hobbies? Sure. Look, I love music. I love heavy metal music. Oh, wow. I love it. I know that when you look at me and you see my blonde curls and my freckles and my green eyes, you would never picture a 44-year-old lady dancing ACDC. I do. Love it. Skid Row, ACDC, Guns N' Roses, Black Crown. By the way, they just got a Christmas album. Just I love music. I, music gives me the energy. I, my dad loved music. My husband has his drug band. So I'm kind of like, yes, you know, I am a drug animal. I love sailing at the water. You know, for me, the water, swimming and sailing and just being outside is another of my hobbies. I know I should like working out. I don't. I mean, trying to repair my brain at my age, anything impossible. I have my peloton bike here, like, staring at me, telling me, Laura, but uh, I don't like uh, really doing exercise, which is bad. It's a really bad discipline we all should do. But I love walking around and stuff. What other hobbies do I like? I'm learning a lot about art now. Uh, so I am basically stalking a lot of painters on Instagram and kind of like, what is this lady? You know, I love to learn about art, about the creative process behind a piece of art. Those are my, my hobbies. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you again. You know, I always like to invite all of our guests to join us on campus once things go back. I would have loved to, yes. So uh, mm. that, uh, that invitation is there. It might not be for my year, but for future generations, they would love to have you. And you are definitely now part of the Wharton FinTech family. Yes. So if there's anything we can be of help, please reach out. What we enjoy the most is always talking to founders. And uh, one thing that we say at the Venture City is that we never give empty notes. We try to, even if we can't help you because we are not the right partner for your adventure, we will try to help you as much as we can to identify the right partner for you. Outstanding. Well, thank you, Laura. 
Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 